Yeah, I mean, did you know that Steve Jobs wanted there to be uniforms? No. Is that true? Yes, it's true. So now we've got a scoop on okay, our Okay, but wait a minute. Were they black turtleneck blue jeans? No. I no. That, I, I'm assuming he wanted, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, but I envision it as like a space suit type, like a jumpsuit, oh, like an Apple God. jumpsuit. Like a mechanic, like that yeah. zip up. The, mm-hmm. Okay, that, that could work. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Hi. We're back here again. We are. I'm psyched about our next guest. We don't talk to a lot of journalists. I wish we talked to more. Like the real deal journalists? No. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk to this person who is a journalist Mm -hmm. for Wired. Mm. And I want to talk to them about how the tech companies keep their secrets. And who is the hardest to talk to? Who's the easiest to talk to? Like how all that works. And interesting times to ask that question, right? It's just a big world. That's and a, a boring lot question 10 years ago. No, that's right. Nobody cared. Nobody now cared. it's like, why Why won't they tell us everything? Right. Louise Mitsakis, welcome. Thank you for being on the welcome. show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You talk to giant technology companies as if they were human. Human is a stretch, but I do talk to most of the big tech giants on a regular basis. How does one become a technology journalist at Wired Magazine? It's a pretty good thing to be. Yeah, I'm really extremely lucky. A couple of things. So I studied philosophy. I didn't know anything about tech. I then tried to cite a John Herman piece in my thesis. And my thesis advisor very kindly said to me, this is a long form journalism piece. You do not belong in this. You need to do something else. Mm-hmm. But I just really liked the internet. And then I started working at Motherboard, which is Vice's tech site. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at Mashable for a while. I just really liked it. And it's funny because I only started doing this a couple of years ago and it was super nerdy and niche. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, what does that mean? Does that mean a technology journalist? Do you like use data or something? And I was like, no, I like want to cover Facebook. And that was still kind of something that business reporters did. Being a quote unquote tech reporter kind of meant that you were a business reporter that covered the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about Wired is that they have been doing it for a really long time. But yeah, it was just kind of an accident that I fell into. I've never covered anything else. Let's say Apple. Apple is a really big company. Wired tells a lot of stories about Apple. Apple's Apple's big in technology, just a little company kind of on the way. Yeah, something, telephones or something like that. I'm not sure. So I'm assuming your boss leans out of his door and says, Louise! Go talk to Apple and find out what the hell's going on with this iPhone X. Like the chewed cigar guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is really not her boss. I know her boss. Yeah. It's not. Um, it's a very nice Slack message that I get uh, that's like, hey, Louise, can you look into this? And let's actually break that down a little bit, right? Because you're talking to their PR department. So is there is that one person? Do you just call like Apple PR after looking it up in the white pages? Like what? how, what, how does that even happen? So, you know, if you cover a company regularly, you probably have the people you work with. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're working with Facebook or you're working with Twitter or Apple, there's kind of a group of people who address what you address and you kind of, there's a tit for tat and you start to get to know them. But these companies are always going to outnumber you. I would say it's fair to say 20 to one. So you might deal with five different PR people on a story and you're the one reporter. And I tend to notice that a lot of them know a lot about their company, but not necessarily the greater what's going on in tech. Like I've tried to talk to them about trends or be like, you know, I'm talking about this. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, so you go home at five. So they're, they're in their world, especially Apple. I got to imagine that's like, like vacuum sealed. Yeah. Much more so. Have than, you seen the meme that's like uh, chaotic good, neutral good? You know what I'm talking about? And no. It's like 
they'll put like different pastas or different things into like chaotic good, chaotic neutral and these different categories. I think it's fun to think about uh, the tech companies that way. Like yeah. chaotic evil is definitely Amazon. Yeah. Like chaotic neutral is probably Facebook. You know, yeah. chaotic good is maybe like the EFF. <laughs> you know, right. like, this right. is exciting though. Why is Amazon chaotic evil? Because they have their tentacles everywhere and they're mm. disrupting so many different parts of our lives. And one of my favorite threads about Amazon that rarely gets talked about in New York, but you know, if you have a company in different cities all over the country, is that they get a ton of money from local governments to open a new warehouse or to open a new data center. And like, that's just such a tentacle. Tax breaks and all of it. Yeah, there was a report uh, earlier this month or maybe last month in Bloomberg that they're actually getting their electricity subsidized. Like other people in town are paying their electric bill. I mean, but, crazy. but think of all the good they do and all, you know, they need money to to just. I, I, I love telling the story. I, I ordered a router and a case of Pellegrino for, on Prime Now, and they both showed up the same day, and I hugged the delivery person. Well, a person in a cage at a warehouse literally put that into a box for you. <laughs> this, it's, I feel like this wasn't a topic 15 years ago. The, the, the notion of what are these tech companies doing to our lives? So right. I, I will say to push back on that a little bit, I've looked at some of the early research and there were like studies in like 1991 that were like people who spend time on the internet are more upset. Are going to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think this has happened, but it's just gotten so much bigger and so much wider. I mean, more people. Well, also, were they wrong? Yeah. <laughs> TBD, Paul. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, you've got really clear, perfectly drawn out villains now. You don't need the study. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's hard when you're the richest person in the world and you buy, you know, the biggest mansion in a city. It's kind of hard to not be branded as a villain. Scrutinized, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but some of them, I think, have done a really good job. And it's interesting to look at, like, the CEO of Salesforce, which, you know, employs more people in SF than any other company. And until he bought Time Magazine the other day, everyone was like, oh, whoa, this guy's got a lot of money. Let's, what's going on here? Like, there are some of these companies that aren't so... He's not, laid low. Yeah, they're not in your pocket all day, but they do have a lot of power that you don't think about. And I think those are some of the more interesting threads that I think are going right. to start to come out in the next couple of years. Like, there's, you know, there's tons, dozens of Facebook reporters now. How many reporters are dedicated to Salesforce? Salesforce could have bodies in their freezer right now. We have no idea. They're just this, like, giant part of how business gets done. But it doesn't have that Zuckerbergian narrative around it. And so I, I think people just aren't as excited. Well, their interface is the enterprise, not the individual. It's B2B, right? Right. So that's just companies eating each other alive. You know, that's just how true. it goes in business. If and, you disrupt business, that's a lot. It's different than disrupting culture. Yeah. Right? So. I mean, look, ultimately they are carrying and bringing in tons and tons of effectively customer data, but it's just different than... Louise, what's the biggest boring story that you can't get anyone to pay attention to? The subsidies, I think I think that's really interesting and people don't realize, like, you know, I was watching Elon Musk talk about his rocket and sending all these people into space. And I'm like, yeah, he got, you know, what is it, $5 billion that we've paid for that? Like, these are grants from NASA. And I think that the biggest, it's super boring, but I think that there's this narrative of maybe government is not as bad. It's, we, we're kind of putting it as government versus tech. Is, is tech going to get regulated? And I think the story that's lost there is actually the government is tech. 
way right. more than you realize. And that's boring. And it's like, you know, for a civics class. But I think we've lost that in like the senators versus Zuckerberg. You know, that's what it's become. I just would have assumed that Elon Musk is sort of pure libertarian and would never sully his hands with that that dirty government money. But it, obviously not. Right. Like it's how it needs well, to and go. The, the narrative is like private space flight. And it's like, yeah, no, we've all paid for that. You know, like that. It's I'm not saying it's bad. Like, yeah, let's get people into space. Like, that's cool. I'm into that. But let's not pretend that. He did that, you know, it, or same thing with Tesla, with all of these companies. Like, yeah, I want to drive an electric car if I drive a car again. But we need to talk about how is that really getting done? It's not the one genius at the top of the company. It's all of us. It's taxpayers. It's a lot of different programs that have actually happened. You know, people forget that the Internet was a government project. Well, it's, it's boring. It's boring. Yeah, it's, it's not exciting. It's just not about, an exciting. There's not a lot of scandal to it. Let me tell you about a technology company that doesn't need a big PR department because we're really damn transparent. And we're doing the right things. You call us up and you say, guys, I need to understand something. And we say, let me help you out. When we help you out. So how do we help? Hello at postlight.com. And what do we do? Uh, We're a design and technology shop in New York City. We build those big things that make everything work. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's stop talking to each other and talk to Luis. What is the hardest tech company to talk to? Apple or Amazon. Okay. I think people don't know too, like if you talk about something, you kind of, especially as a journalist for Wired, you need to reach out and be like, hey, I'm writing a story about this. I'd like to get some comment. And then then what happens? So I think the biggest misconception is that, oh, so there's like one line in the story. So like they emailed her that line or something and that's what happened. And sometimes that is what happened. But Usually there's like three conversations of us on the phone. There's like, especially if there's something that I discovered that was against their terms of service. So they want to shape this story, even if they don't want to be on the record. Sometimes it's, it's a little bit more innocuous. It's more just like, what, what's going on? Like, we are so big. We, we, sorry, what are you talking about? Like, can you, like, we just don't even know what you're saying. So it's news to them too. Yeah, it's often news to them, too. They're like, oh, wait, wait, who is that? Can you send us a link? Like, that's often like a screenshot. Like, that's, but I think, you know, it's two billion people in some cases. It makes sense. Yeah. It's impossible to keep track of that. Also, these are are PR people. They're not like product managers in the weeds with the product. Right. I think that's also an interesting structure is that usually there's like a PR person or a couple of PR people who are assigned to specific products. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're actually embedded with the product teams. And then uh, I often find that like they sit with the product team and I often find that's a better relationship because they'll be like, hey, OK, one second. And I know they're just like going and talking to the people they're sitting with and like getting, you know, an answer about what's going on. Hey, Sally, how come? Yeah. OK. Yeah. And Apple is organized that way as well. And so is Amazon. A lot of these companies have kind of figured out the structure of how to talk to journalists. But yeah, you just get stonewalled really hard with a lot of these companies. Or they're Mm. like, oh, let's talk about this. But it's all off the record. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of evidence gathering for them. Like they're just kind of, all right, we got this girl to talk to us because she needs a comment, but we're not going to give her a comment. Or give us a minute. Let yeah. us figure out what's up and then we'll Or they'll, they'll let you publish and then they'll call you after and be like, okay, now, we re- now we're more mad than we thought we were going to be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of back and forth that happens. And when you see that one comment, maybe there's, you know, six more conversations. There's five more hours of work that you didn't get in that. And I think from the outside, it can look like these companies are more stonewalling than they are. So a lot of the time they want to at least talk to you and figure out what's going on. So, so this is interesting. I mean, the media... Uh, something that's talked about a lot these days. I, I mean, it used to be where you just kept knocking at the door and hope hoped someone would 
come out and talk to you about anything, whatever you were chasing. Now it's just, the world is just so leaky and stuff just gets out. I mean, what I'm hearing here is that you're, you're a source for them. Yeah. There's been columns about it, about how journalists are often playing the role of content moderators. Cause yeah. they're like, Oh, you guys got a problem here. Like we looked into it. Right. We, d- we conducted right. an analysis. We got a third party, you know, uh, a data analyst to look at this for us yeah. and, and we're doing the work for you. I think that the only reason YouTube, for example, cleaned up their act significantly is the result of like 10 back to back investigations that showed they were like showing really creepy videos to children and putting like toothpaste ads next to Nazis. Not their own investigations. No, 10 back to back investigations by journalists. So finally, somebody goes, okay, guys, a problem here. uh, Honestly, man, exactly. And so you start to see patterns and you're like, okay, well, are you responsible for this? Should you be policing this? Should you be governing this world? And then that question always lights it up for people. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Is it fair? This doesn't seem fair. I built the tools. The tools are great. And this isn't fair. Is this fair? It's a really hard question. And I think that there are degrees. Like, I don't think it's, uh, I'm definitely not a reporter who's like, it's always absolutely the platform's fault and their responsibility. And I think that it's not a good way to do it. And I also think then every single story you write is, ha ha, I got you. Right. And then everything is like, there's still Nazis on X platform. Like, congratulations. Like there's still Nazis on the internet. And I think that's not, you're not pushing the conversation any further, but I do think that it does fall squarely into their problem when they're making money off of it. And I think the problem is that you can argue that they're always making money off of it because they're making money off of your attention. So if people are paying attention to it, they're making money. But I do think that it becomes more severe in a YouTube situation where it's like running an ad, right? Like that's like, you know, you're running an expensive pre-roll ad from a Fortune 500 company. That seems to me more blame than you have a couple of Nazis that just popped up and you you haven't gotten rid of them yet or something. Like, I think there are really degrees of where this is. And also, you know, what is the harm? Are you radicalizing a bunch of teenagers? Like, that's pretty bad. You know, are you, you know, is there fake reviews that are screwing over third party sellers on Amazon? Like, that seems pretty bad. You know, it kind of depends on what the issue is. And I would also say that if you just want to make money, I think that these platforms are going to make more money if they're more responsible about this stuff. I think that it was, you know, in the end, how much money did YouTube lose off of all those scandals, probably not that much. But I think in the future, they're probably going to get better clients and they're going to, you know, having these kinds of protections in place. Maybe, I mean, that's the hope is that this is also good for the business. Right. Well, you're defining a continuum between like people are bad, which is increasingly not news. And the system is broken, which is news. Do you think most people think YouTube is broken? No. That's why you need journalists. You know, in reading the news... You see these horrible campaigns that kick off that are very divisive and they try to smear someone to death and people are moving out of their houses because they're getting death threats and so on. And then you you draw that dotted line back to Twitter or back to whatever platform, let's say Twitter for a moment. And if I'm Twitter, I can't keep up with this. So you're Jack Dorsey. I can't. Well, if I'm Jack Dorsey, I'm going to say nothing for the next minute. <laughs> just sort of look at you. And just eyes. sort of look at you. Yeah. And then... Let's eventually talk, about, talk we're going to talk about textiles <laughs> well okay I, I honestly <laughs> i have the answer for you oh you know, I, I don't think that jack dorsey can you know make people not bad he's never going to make everybody good on twitter uh-huh. but i have a good example for you twitter allows you to take any tweet and embed it in a news story no matter what right like you can mm-hmm. just take a tweet and embed it in a news story okay. and a lot of times what happens is that people get their tweets embedded without their permission it's you know 
people are mad about this. And then they embed 20 tweets or something. And, you know, if it's something political, then those people get harassed. Right. Because it's an easy you can just click on their profile and it goes right to that person's profile. We OK, actually, we did an event with the Knight Foundation. They did a big research effort into this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that okay. that's a product decision that you made. And it's it's one of the reasons that Twitter stayed so relevant, even though it's not that big, is that journalists are on it. Journalists take those tweets. Those tweets get embedded all over the Web, which, you know, is good in a sense. But you could build a product that limited people from getting so harassed. Like maybe if you clicked on that tweet, it didn't just take you to that person's profile or there was like a different mechanism. I'm not a, you know, not a product designer, but I think that that's a good example. If he's not going to stop people from being evil. Somebody with 500 followers who's suddenly being linked on like Buzzfeed or the New York times is, is being exposed in a way that they never expected when they signed up for Twitter. Is that Twitter's responsibility or the publisher's responsibility? Well, I think both, but I do think that they've publicized and allowed and wanted that to be a feature of how it worked is that they wanted it to be super embeddable and they like made these beautiful things. So when you embed it in a web page, it looks really nice and it, you know, lays in with the text and you made, you wanted it to spread as far as possible. But at the same time, whoever built that function didn't think as much about how that could be abused. And I think that's the kind of conversation we have to have. And I think, yeah, I mean, who cares? But that's not, uh, hold no, on. Who that's cares not, whose responsibility is? It's a product problem. No, I, I don't know if it is because Ultimately, I've got 500 followers and and when you've got 500 followers, your reach is very limited. As far as Twitter's concerned, that's about all I'm going to ever be able to do to get you higher exposure. Now, let's move on to BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed's reach is at its worst hundreds of thousands reading an article, tens of thousands really failing Sometimes on an article. Sometimes 10 million. Sometimes yeah. 10 million. How does that end up landing at Twitter's feed? I mean, of course, I think it's I think it's definitely both. But I think you built that function, you popularized that function, you told journalists. I I don't you know this has been around for a long time, but I'm assuming that they had a whole rollout that was like, look, you can embed this stuff. And I think that's you know what did you want it to be used for? But I do think, of course, there's the blame on the bad actors. You know, I think that Section 230 of the Communications Act, you know, is a good thing. I think that we should continue to you know allow platforms to not be responsible for all the content on there, or else they're just going to get sued into non-existence. You know, I don't think that that's a good thing. But the conversation around like the specific way that the product was designed, I think is important because that's what we can fix. I'm not going to stop people from sending death threats, but I can go after data brokers that make my address really easy to get on the internet for $10 or whatever. I can't, you know, stop them, but I think mitigating that. And a lot of this stuff happens, a lot of this harassment, a lot of this bad stuff really happens in like 10 seconds. You see a hoax, Facebook makes it so easy, you spread it and then it's over. I think it's making those really small product changes and the interface changes that are going to help cure a lot of this, honestly. You know what's brutal here is that the culture of embedding a tweet, that's a real early web culture thing. Like it's a, we're going to create a web of documents and you're going to be able to embed these tweets. Mm-hmm. And that was Twitter being a good citizen yep. of the Scribbed internet. Scribbed and SlideShare and yeah. every, everything had to be embeddable. Obviously, we're going to participate and yeah. we're, we're good. We're your friends. And then something changes. Yeah. There's hyper growth and the culture changes. And suddenly this... Lovely idea where everything's connected just becomes poison. I think that that ship may have sailed. I think, I, I think even if they dialed that back, I think you know the screen grab is real, and you're not going to get rid of that, and they're not going to close search down. Well, screen grab, nobody can do it, um, and you see it when they delete a tweet, right? It becomes a screen grab because it's not there anymore on Twitter, but it was grabbed. Somebody snapshotted their laptop screen 
and it's over. And there's also a balance, right, between, you know, showing your work and having, you know, having the stuff be available. I think there's not, I don't want to be able to be like, okay, we're just going to hide everything. Like that's not the right move right. either. But I think we've lost, it became lopsided, I think, in terms of free speech and in terms of like, you know, journalists showing their work and embedding all of this stuff. And that was kind of happened at the expense of security. And I think re rethinking about a lot of the web and a lot of the architecture of the web. Um, and I think we're starting to have these conversations like Google wants to change the URL. I think that's a great move. Like there's lots of the only reason phishing attacks work is because like URL, like no one reads URLs. They don't make any sense anymore. Right. I think I hope we have a real conversation about like really thinking about all of these different elements of the web page and like going through the internet and how do we make that a more secure and better experience, especially as we have so many more people on the internet now who have no idea what's going on because they're, you know, my mom doesn't really understand what an app is, but she's, you know, on the internet and she's like looking at different websites and stuff. And I think we're going to have to deal with a lot more people like that who are using all of this stuff and we have to have it be better. See, it's hard for me because the, the URL makes the structure transparent and you can see what's going on under the hood. Well, we're, we're the older dudes, right? We I have know. a particular affection for the URL. We, as we like the piping. Well, we as like seeing the, the seams. Piping. We like seeing the nuts and bolts. We do. Yeah. You can have those just like labeled as like, you know, this like weird code that you're looking at means that you clicked on this link from an email. Right, right. You know, you could have this stuff be better labeled. And I think that's what's really interesting to me is these super minute decisions because they have such an effect on how we consume information, how the Internet works. Are people fundamentally bad? I think an extremely small number of them are always going to be very bad. But I think that a lot of the quote unquote scandals on the Internet or the way that I see things unfold on the Internet are way less sinister than you think because it's the context gets so distorted and a lot more people seem to be in that horrible category than they actually are. But I do get really creeped out a lot and wonder, you know, sometimes I'm on the subway and I'm like, God, there was this horrible troll who was so terrible to me today. Like, are they sitting on the subway? Like, what do they look like? Mm -hmm. They're probably on the subway <laughs> to answer yeah. your question. Maybe not on your particular ride, yeah. but they're probably on the And that's like upsetting because it's just the internet makes it so uh, anonymous and it's really strange to, um, I always think about this Adrian Chen Gawker piece where he unmasked one of the most famous Reddit trolls and he had like gross, like I think he had like upskirt, like underage girl subreddit, like hor the worst of the worst. And he was unmasked and it was just such a fascinating story about he was just like sweating in his office when the journalist called, you know, and it's I, just a guy. I remember that. It's just a, someone with an office job, but who liked like pictures of dead women. Like it was terrible. Yeah, I remember there was this whole situation where all of these female video gamers were getting swatted, which if you don't know is when someone calls, lies to the police and says there's a bomb in your house. So a SWAT team gets called to your house, which is a horrible form of harassment. This was a thing for a little while and may still be a still thing. A they thing. don't, they don't yeah. report it as much. Uh, but. A lot more police departments know about it yeah. more, which is great. And I remember it turned out it was like an underage kid in Canada and they couldn't extradite him because he was a minor. And it was like, God, like, what is, we just connected the whole world. and like, what have we done? Right. Yeah. Should there be laws that criminalize the behavior and leave the businesses alone? I think that right now, the kind of laws that we have against sexual harassment or against stalking, against this sort of stuff are not designed or written to deal with a lot of this behavior. And I think right. from, you know, experience talking to these women and there are some men, they have a really hard time bringing cases like the, to get to the point where you can like unmask someone via their IP yeah. address is like so hard. It's tens of thousands of dollars before you can even get there. And so I do think because there of are technical challenges or legal challenges, legal challenges, yeah. you have to like prove harm and that can be yeah. hard. And like, 
if they're targeting all sorts of people, it's like, you know, you have to get, you have to organize with those people. You know, it's, yeah. and, and I think that in some cases it's like clearly a hate crime, right? Like clearly this person is yeah. committing a hate crime and we just don't have the mechanisms to deal with that. But I mean, I hope that there's like the better ways to deal with this because there are still so many gross sites where the people who host them don't care. Cloudflare doesn't care. Right. It's going to stay online. Google still indexes them. We've dismantled a lot of, attacked a lot of this other stuff, and there just remains kind of these cesspools that people are still really hanging out on. Yeah. It's also just moving real fast, and the law moves real, real slow. And that that's just this constant tension. It's often reactive, right? The streetlight goes up after the accident. Yeah. What are the good technology companies? But which ones are easy to talk to? It's really hard to see who's just full of shit and who kind of knows what they're actually talking about. But a lot of the security companies can be really fun to talk to and they're poking at really fun problems. Um, you know, People are doing cybersecurity and they have a lot of cool people working there. Like, and they kind of want to talk. Yeah. They want to talk about their research. They come out with a lot of research. Yeah. They share information to those companies. Like they have mailing lists and they're, they're into yeah. Yeah, or they'll yeah. like sh- they'll like both find a, a vulnerability at once, and we're like, mm-hmm. "Hey, it's cool, guys! Like, no worries." You know, like they'll mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty cool. I also this is really controversial, but I will say that I think Facebook and Twitter have gotten better since they've kind of stepped in the mud, and I, and I honestly think that's better. They've started doing more like press calls. I also think that's a reflection of their power. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost think that Facebook should have like normal press conferences the way that like a politician does. So that it's all in the open and we all get to see what's happening. That sounds crazy, but it's actually a very good idea, right? Like, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they? They're so big. They're a pseudo government. Why? Why not? And we, we're already treating them in a lot of ways like that. You know, we, we talk about their new rules the same way that we talk about new laws. You know, why can't we have a press conference about, hey, guys, we updated our content moderation policies or whatever. Let's have a press conference about Can you it. Imagine the Facebook press secretary, what that role is like. Oh, Yo. my God. It was news the other day that they're hiring head of human rights for policy. Okay. Okay. Like, sure. So, you know, if that's we not- should get one too here at Postlight <laughs> with our 50 people. <laughs> if that's not a, you know, a government job, quote unquote, a pseudo foreign policy, international, yeah. policy, what is right? Yeah. So, yeah, that person's going to come from the world bank. I mean, they're, yeah. The UN. Or, yeah. yeah. You know, the human rights watch, where do you come from? You yeah. Know? So I think that's kind of the direction that they're moving in. So they've become more like politicians in the sense that they're more willing to talk, more willing to yeah. have a dialogue which is good but anyone who does the more you get into hardware i would say the harder you are to talk to like hard because that's like Hmm. a big market thing if anything comes out about the hardware that like screws everything up and they don't want anything to leak ever because they have these big circus crazy events where they you know hold up their shiny new telephone and tell you all about it right it has to get unveiled right there yeah how horrible do blockchain companies make your life so I've written about cryptocurrencies and blockchain companies probably a handful of times, and it has destroyed my email. That is really a space where if I'm doing a cryptocurrency story, there's like three people who are not idiots or who are not going to lie to me, like literally three. Mm-hmm. And finding a fourth one is a full-time job. <sighs> Ouch. <laughs> well, I can't say that's surprising. Yeah. I mean, the only people you can kind of trust are like cryptographers, right? Like literally academic cryptographers who they'll be like, no, no, this blockchain is like, you know, full of holes. And you've seen in the analyses that media coverage has an impact on the price and they know that. So they're hung. If I can get this in wired, I won. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they know that. So the best way for people to keep an eye on you feels like the Louise Matsakis page on wired.com. Yeah, that would be better. I think that that's a good place. Wow. It's just getting more and more complicated. It is. I think there's a really important thing here, which is like you can engage with this world and come to understand it if you work really hard for a couple of years. 
People see tech as giant and monolithic and scary. Well, it is. It is, right? I mean, I, I feel bad for Tim Berners-Lee and, and just the guys who are like, well, if we connect the world, it's just going to be a better place. And then now everybody's shitting on everybody. Right, but I mean, I'm just, yes. That's and real. who's responsible for what and, and, you know, how does it all weave together? It's really hard. And this has been really interesting to kind of peel it back a little bit. Anyway, Luis really does good work covering tech and people should go check out her stuff. Like, it's just like every couple days, there's like, oh, that's what's going on in Facebook. I know now. It's good. It's really good. It's, it's, it helps you understand this giant, terrifying industry. Um, all right. Hello at postlight.com <laughs> is how you can deal with this giant, terrifying industry if you need We're services. We're here for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll never keep secrets from you. And our PR department will tell you everything you need to know. Hello at postlight.com. We love you. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.